This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's July 29th, 2014 from Slate Hits the Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Read an interesting story about Amelia Bedelia today. You know, Amelia Bedelia. Let me read from Wikipedia. Amelia Bedelia is the protagonist and title character of a series of American children's books that involve Amelia repeatedly misunderstanding various commands of her employer by always taking figures of speech literally, causing her to perform incorrect actions with a comical effect. All right, so I'll give you a couple examples of what Amelia Bedelia does. When she's told to dust the furniture, she puts dust on the furniture and then, of course, has to be told to undust the furniture. When told to make a sponge cake, she bakes real sponges inside a cake. So that's Amelia Bedelia. And the Wikipedia description is central to this story because today in the Daily Dot, I came across, I accidentally started a Wikipedia hoax. Here, E.J. Dixon writes about the time she was a college sophomore in 2009. She came back from a trip to McDonald's with her friend and while pretty high, began adding erroneous information to the Wikipedia pages of a lot of fictional children's characters. Dixon's contribution to the Amelia Bedelia page was this. Amelia Bedelia's character is based on a maid in Cameroon where the author spent some time during her formative years. Her vast collection of hats, notorious for their extensive plumage, inspired Parrish, that's the author, to write an assortment of tales based on her experiences in the North, or just in North. Dickinson made that up. Like I said, she was stoned. She had just come back from McDonald's. But then, a couple weeks ago, one Grantland writer tweeted something about Amelia Bedelia. Another Grantland writer went to Wikipedia, saw that thing about Cameroon was still there, and then tweeted a screen grab of that. And this had been on Wikipedia, you know, since 2009. So, of course, it was repeated a lot by other bloggers. And this part's unclear. Maybe even by the original author's nephew, who's still writing Amelia Bedelia books. Again, to remind you of the headline of this article, it was, I accidentally started Wikipedia hoax. So, I'm going to say this wasn't a hoax. This was a lie. A lie that got repeated, not exactly a hoax. And let's also talk about the word accidentally. Everything about it was purposeful. You were high at the time, but there was no accident. Side note, I do not condemn. I think the thing is kind of funny. It's just not an accident. All right. But how is it that no one on Wikipedia or on any of the blogs that repeated the Cameroon connection, no one has stopped to notice that Amelia Bedelia 
if not technically afflicted with Asperger's syndrome, certainly is on the spectrum. Draw the curtains, Amelia. So she sketches the curtains, make a date cake. She cuts dates out of a calendar and mixes it into cake batter. That's spectrum behavior. But Amelia Bedelia, while not a great actual book, is a good teaching book for kids, right? Okay, guys, we're running late. Hey, show me how Amelia Bedelia would run late. So you talk about puns. And while the original joke was pretty good for a stoned college sophomore, I am glad that Wikipedia has scrubbed clean the falsities, though all that soap and water may have damaged the servers. I guess you could say that the Amelia Bedelia entry has been remade. Remade? She's a maid? She makes cakes with yellow? All right, fine. On today's show, speaking of Wikipedia, they don't yet offer a leather-bound version of Wikipedia, so we must grapple with the question, is reading pages... Is that better than reading screens? Maria Konnikova will be on to talk about that. In the spiel, I talk tough to a New York sports talk legend. But first, to Israel, we'll get the Palestinian perspective. A ceasefire in Gaza is not in the offing anytime soon. Hamas military chief Mohammed Deef says there is no middle ground as regards a truce until Israel ends its, quote, aggression and siege of Gaza. Israeli strikes destroyed Hamas's media offices, the home of a top leader and electricity plant today. Over a thousand have died in Gaza in the 22 days of fighting. The UN says 70 percent are civilians. Israel's military aims in this operation are to up uproot Hamas to degrade their ability to launch attacks into Israel. Hamas's military aims in the short term are less clear. Well, joining me now from Nazareth is Diana Butto. She previously served as the legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team from 2000 to 2005 and its negotiations with Israel. Later advised Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Thanks for coming on, Diana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Can you articulate what is Hamas's strategy? Well, at this point in time, they're trying to protect themselves and defend against uh, this onslaught that the Israelis are committing against them. And so the other side of that would be Israel is saying, we want Hamas to stop firing rockets. Well, you know, you can't make the argument that Israel is defending itself for a number of reasons. First, it has been demonstrated that Israel was the party that attacked first. Secondly, Israel is in occupation of the Gaza Strip. It can't sit sit back and say that it's acting in self-defense. You cannot drop a one-ton bomb, and they've dropped more than more than uh, uh, sixty-five of them over just over the course of the past week, on a, a defenseless civilian refugee population, and claim that you are acting in a in proportional means to uh, to the the rockets that are being fired. Are the numbers in this case ipso facto? That's all you have to look at because what Israel says are arguments like human shields and arguments like we happen to be very good at protecting our citizens. If we weren't as good, we'd have massive casualties. Hamas knows what it's doing and they specifically put their citizens in harm's way. I mean, Netanyahu has this construction that says we use our military technology to protect our citizens. They use their military technology specifically to expose their citizens. Well, Mike, it, you know, this is one of the most offensive arguments that I've heard uh, come out of the mouths of the Israelis. This idea that somehow Palestinians put themselves in danger for Israel to then, to then kill them. 
or the idea that Palestinians want to die is such a repugnant, racist, offensive statement, and is simply designed to dehumanize Palestinians so that it becomes easier and more acceptable to murder them. Rather than castigating the people who've been killed, we should be castigating the party that's doing the killing, and that's Israel. Does Hamas not want any casualties, or does Hamas want to publicize the casualties that are brought about by this conflict? Again, another very offensive question, which is you want to, you want to ex- explain to me that Hamas is somehow going to capitalize on people being killed? That's obviously, that's obviously a farce. That's like saying that the United States wants to capitalize on Americans being killed. You wouldn't ask this of the Israelis, and so you shouldn't be asking it of me. Or, or, and again, I'm not a representative of Hamas, but this idea that somehow we want to die or that Hamas wants us to die is so repugnant and is simply designed to dehumanize Palestinians. Wait, uh, I'm not even getting into intention. How do you deny the fact that Hamas at least publicizes to try to get international attention on their side? They publicize the fact that many innocents have died in this conflict. They clearly do. Their media channels are filled with information about the great costs of the war, and they're constantly pointing to the many innocents. And I agree, there are many, many hundreds of innocents who have died in this conflict. But are you saying Hamas doesn't do that? And and which is also the flip side when it comes to the Israelis as well. People in government, they actually end up republicizing about people who get killed. This is the way governments work. Now, I also want to tell you that it's not just Hamas who's coming out and reporting the numbers of people who've been killed. It's so too is the United Nations. So does that mean that the United Nations also wants to capitalize on... No, I think there's a difference between documenting the numbers and what you do with the images and how you uh, how you put them in context. But I wanted to ask you a different question. Do you think Israel could actually be more efficient in limiting civilian deaths with how they target and where they target? Or do you think if there's going to be a war and if this many rockets are going to be fired back and forth, it is an inevitable consequence of that, that there will be what's called collateral damage and many, many people will die who shouldn't? I shudder to think that we are in a world where we just dismiss the people as being killed and call them simply collateral damage. It's, that's a sad statement if, if this is the world that we live in. So I think that the more important thing is really just look at what's happened. Israel hasn't just simply targeted combatants. They seem to be thinking that this is some sort of a video game where you can just shoot down anybody. And all you have to do is look at the Shuja'iya neighborhood. Almost the entire neighborhood has been taken out. There's no way that that was in any way targeting combatants or any of that sort of thing. It's deliberately designed to bring down the Palestinians and to bring down their infrastructure. Just today, the power plant was hit. Over the course of the past three weeks, the water infrastructure has been hit. All of this is simply designed to bring down the Palestinian infrastructure, and all of it is a violation of the laws of war. In other words, these are war crimes. We have reports of the military leadership and the political leadership of Hamas being at odds. And of course, Hamas is a rival to the Fatah party and you advise President Mahmoud Abbas. So is there anything, and we have all your thoughts about uh, what Israel should or shouldn't be doing, is there anything you think Hamas should be doing differently? I I said I'm not a member of Hamas and I can't purport to speak on, on behalf of Hamas. What I can say is that there have been attempts and there continue to be attempts to try to get a ceasefire. And the only way that we're going to get a ceasefire that is lasting is if we address the root causes. The root causes are this is one of them is this 
brutal seven-year blockade that has been placed on the Gaza Strip. I used to live in Gaza. I know what it's like to live under a very brutal blockade and brutal siege. Without that siege being lifted, we will not be able to move forward and have a lasting ceasefire. Nobody wants a ceasefire more than the Palestinians. We see the numbers. We see who's been killed. We see whose infrastructure has been devastated and destroyed. The problem is there's no international leadership right now to force Israel to stop. Do you think that the actions of Hamas get us closer to that point or further away? Well, this isn't the actions of Hamas. Once again, you might not like the tactics, but if you're so offended by the tactics, then you should be even more offended by the tactics the Israelis are using. Diana Butto is a human rights lawyer from Canada. We spoke to her uh, from Nazareth, and she has experience working as a legal advisor to Palestinians and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. My pleasure. Studies show that reading online in terms of comprehension actually isn't as good. There are many reasons why, and the studies are complicated, and to wade into this, we have Maria Konnikova, who writes for The New Yorker. Of course, she writes for The New Yorker online, so can I even believe you or really remember what you wrote? Hello, Maria. Hi, Mike. So you tackled the idea, and we're going to play our regular game, Is This Bullshit? But you tackled the idea that reading on paper is a deeper kind of reading, a better kind of reading, it leads to better comprehension. And I know that this is an idea that people have, especially old people, especially teachers who say kids don't want to read Silas Marner anymore. But do kids ever want to read Silas Marner? I don't know if that's the appropriate question, but, you know, have things changed since we've gone to reading online versus reading on paper? I think things have changed, but not necessarily in as dire or as direct a way as people might think. So definitely reading online is a different physiological process. And what we know from the research that people have been doing over the last 10 to 15 years is that online we tend to skim Mm -hmm. much more than we do on paper. And by the way, this holds true of e-readers as well. So not just on the internet, but like on a Kindle or an iPad. Um, And we tend to read for keywords and just much more than we read for deep meaning. And of course, online, there's also this compounding factor of hyperlinks. Yes. So you're reading along and all of a sudden you see this underlined word and you say, ooh, I wonder what that goes to. And suddenly you're reading something else. Right. So in that sense, the reading experience is different. But that doesn't mean that there's something inherent to the screen that makes us unable to read deeply. Right. It just means that it's a different process, and so we need to approach it differently. But I would guess there's much more uniformity as to how the printed word is presented as compared to, you know, some websites have narrow bands of text. Some websites, they splash across the text. I mean, they're just a crazy world. Is the difficulty then of reading online that they're they're asking us to read in so many different ways? Or is it more that if there's this huge range of how they present it, just some of them have to be terrible? Both, because we do know that certain ways of presenting text are easier than others. And the traditional book format, believe it or not, has been shown to be one of the best ways for our eyes to read. The eyes are basically... uh, 
accustomed to reading that line length. That's the ideal amount for us to be able to pay attention to. But what um, Mary Dyson, who's a psychologist um, in England, shows is that when you have all of these different formats competing for your attention, it's really hard for us. It tires our eyes out, and it's really just cognitively demanding. And so, yes, we might come across a page that's perfect, but then right away we have to readjust and we need to switch to a different environment when we're on another page. And so that constant process of readjustment is mentally taxing for us. What about the fact that in paper reading, the light from an outside source illuminates the page, but in online reading, the light comes from the uh, thing that you're reading itself. Oh, absolutely. That's going to have a difference as well. But what I... will that make it worse? Like, why is that worse necessarily? Once again, I don't think it's worse. Yeah. I just think it's different. And that particular thing um, might, over the over the long term, we know that that strains your eyes a little bit more because of the different contrasts. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know how many how many centuries has it been since mothers have said, "Don't read print that's so small in the fading light; you're going to ruin your eyesight." So I think that people always think that for some reason, reading small print yeah. is going to is going to be difficult for you. But the interesting thing is... I, I just got this thought that net native mothers are going to nag their kids. Hit control plus. <laughs> Font size is 16 or above. <laughs> that would be all, wonderful. All nagging mothers are Jewish mothers. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the, the interesting thing is a lot of these effects show up when you're dealing with Kindle as well. Yeah. And that's e-ink. So that's as close as you can get to paper. So I, I don't know that it's necessarily the contrast and the different lighting. I think it's something that's more inherent to the tangibility of a book, the fact that you flip pages, that there's a linear narrative there that's right in front of you, um, as opposed to just a Kindle, which is just one tiny slab of not even paper. Um, and what we know about the way that we process information and we remember information is that we think spatially. So if you think back to high school or to college when you're studying for a test, you often remember where in a textbook you found information. You're like, oh yeah, it was on the bottom left-hand corner of this page. And oh, I remember there was a headline that said this. And you don't have to have photographic memory for that. That's just the way that we process it. When you have a physical book, it's much easier to do that because you remember, oh yeah, that was in the first third of the book. Oh, I remember that chapter. I remember what it looked like. And so you have all of these cues that help you process and cue the context. I think that heft is always tied into nostalgia, being able to touch something. I mean, is there something other than a warm feeling we have for the way it used to be to argue for heft and touch? Well, there does seem to be some initial data that that is the case. Um, there's a woman, Anne Mangan, who studies this exact thing. She calls it haptics. or haptics. Yes, our interaction with the physical aspects of the book. And she has a really interesting study that um, she just presented for the first time on reading a mystery story, um, Jenny Mon Amour, because they read it in, uh, in French, um, on a Kindle or on paper. And after people read it in one of the two formats, they were asked to just do a very simple plot reconstruction task. So, for instance, you had 10 statements and you had to put them in the proper mm -hmm. order. And what they found was that the people who'd read it on paper were able to do this. And this doesn't, doesn't require any deep processing or deep reading. This just yeah, this requires... Happened and that happened, right. Exactly. They were much more accurate when they had read on paper than when they read on the Kindle, which was kind of interesting because it wasn't a long story. 
but somehow the physical book, and this goes back to what we were talking about, it cued the text in a different way. So as they were reading, they were processing it differently and they were encoding it differently. And also the Kindle doesn't fall prey to all these other things we're talking about, a different format, tabs, email popping up, even the light is a little better. Now, if the Kindle is designed and other readers like it are designed to be the optimal way to uh, read online and that still falls short, does that mean that this is that it's possible? Is it possible for online to equal or even surpass text in terms of reading comprehension? Well, the straight answer is we don't know mm-hmm. um, because there's really no long-term data about this. But I think that there's evidence that it can. I can see it evolving in yeah. a way that actually takes all of this into account. We just, we're not quite there yet. All right. So taking all of this into account that it is different, maybe not better, I'm still going to frame our classic game of is this bullshit this way. Reading on paper leads to better and deeper comprehension than reading on screens. Is that bullshit? No, for now, that's not bullshit. Um, and as far as we know, that, that that is the case. That's not to say that in the future, reading online can't be just as deep as reading on paper. We're just not at that point yet. Maria Konnikova writes for TheNewYorker.com. But, you know, don't hold that against her. You can still glean a lot from her writings. And she also did an interesting discussion on this topic on Reddit.com. Again, if you do a deep dive, you get a lot out of that one. So uh, thanks for coming on our show, Maria. Thanks for having me, Mike. And now the spiel. Sometimes you listen to talk radio and you just want to talk back, you know? I I guess they have phones for that, but then you got to wait on hold and you got to say first time, long time. The host is probably going to hang up and not really listen. Luckily, I have a podcast, two podcasts, in fact, where I could do the talking back. I played this on my sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, yesterday, and I want to play it here today. Even if you're not a sports fan, this thing has value. It's just sort of a contemplation of the limits of using the rhetorical question followed by a long pause. It just seems to invite smart-ass answers. And here I provide them. So here we have a sports talk guy. He's Mike Francesa, WFAN legend. I grew up listening to him. He has a very special place in my heart. And he is talking last week. He's actually eventually gets around screaming about the story of the week, which was Tony Dungy and what he said about Michael Sam. To recap, Tony Dungy is the first African-American head coach to win a Super Bowl. He's a commentator on NBC. He's a respected, respected football voice. Michael Sam is the first openly gay player in the NFL. And Tony Dungy said that he wouldn't have drafted Michael Sam and that Michael Sam would be a distraction to a football team. So we joined Mike Francesa a few minutes into his thoughts on the matter, and he has already laid out there that he thinks that Tony Dungy has said something correct, and they were all stupid to think otherwise. Remember, what Tony Dungy said was, Michael Sam will be a distraction, and I wouldn't have drafted Michael Sam. Okay, here we go. Francesa is now speaking about where Sam was taken in the draft. He's the 249th player picked. What other guy who's the 249th player picked is a story? Okay. He's a story. So then how is he wrong? He was wrong because he said he wouldn't have drafted him. So the commentaries, Slam and Dungy, are so dumb it doesn't make sense. He is different. He is a story. That's not what Dungy said. 
Dungey said he was a distraction. And yes, in some ways he is a distraction if you want orderly football because how many 249th picks have press conferences when they arrive? Not many. That doesn't mean you shouldn't draft them. And national media following them. Wait, Mike, aren't you national media? Anyway. And when they wanted to have a TV show about him, the other players were mad. But the TV show never happened. When they wanted to have a reality show about his training camp, the other players said, wait a second. So, yes, Tony's right. No, Tony's wrong. That can't have been a distraction because it never happened. The fact that you're hearing sound bites about the 249th player picked in the draft is exactly what Tony was talking about. That's inexact. Tony was talking about not drafting him. How dumb are people? Oh, he's not a, he's not a distraction. He's not different. He's not different. You talking about him makes him different. But you're talking about him. And the question is not, was he different? The question is, is he a distraction? And should you not draft him? Just answer the question. Who was the 248th player picked? Ahmad Dixon. What team is he on? The Cowboys. What position does he play? Strong safety. It's like when Tebow showed up. He showed up on a private jet and had walked into a massive press conference as a backup quarterback. And people say, oh, he's just a backup quarterback. Oh, really? How many backup quarterbacks come on their own jet? But Dungy liked Tebow. Why was the 249th player getting an ESPY? He won the Arthur Ashe Courage Award because he has courage. How many times has the seventh-round pick gone up and got an ESPY? You want to line them up for me? Well, actually, a couple six-round picks have won an ESPY. Terrell Davis, Tom Brady, and Kurt Warner won an ESPY, and he wasn't even drafted. But I suppose your point is, does this guy deserve an ESPY? How could an award given before training camp starts be a distraction to training camp? We know what's going on here. What are we, stupid all of a sudden? But when somebody says it, he gets attacked. I'm starting to feel a little stupid. And Tony was just saying, I don't want that in my camp. Well, you know what? He's not. He's allowed to say that. That doesn't mean he's anti-gay. That doesn't mean he's anti-Michael Sam. That doesn't mean he's a bad guy. He was making a statement of fact. In fact, not a fact. More of an opinion. That camp is not normal when you have national media and national television and people holding press conference for a seventh-round rookie. That's different. There's only one more thing left to say, and that's for you to tell me I'm lost. If you don't see that, I'm lost. And you're just not paying attention. Oh, I'm not paying attention. That's how it get me. All right. Back after this. Back after this. Well, we won't be back because that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts. When asked to lower the mic, she began sawing my ankles. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has been in New York all week. He's been working on the equipment. So last night he goes to Shakespeare in the Park, and during intermission, he convinces the entire audience to leave King Lear, and he gives them directions to go see the Book of Mormon. How is this your job, Andy? And he said, you told me to reroute the board. 
You can subscribe in iTunes or listen in SoundCloud. Very pleasing orange on the SoundCloud site. Sign up for our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. We have reached 1,000 likes. Brony.com has 16,000 likes. Those are dudes who like My Little Pony, the bronies. You can email us at thegist at slate.com. I want to admit that we sometimes make mistakes on the show, and I don't know whether to be happy or sad about this fact, but I'll often say to Andy or Andrea, I'll say, hey, we've made a mistake. We have to take down the old file and put up a new one. And they always just react with a quick repost. Thanks for listening.